Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. And I am somewhat shocked to share that this is now season seven. While I was pondering the theme for this season, it felt difficult to narrow in on one thing that would be most useful to us in this moment, which has been so full of confusion, upheaval, turmoil, and stress. But then it came to me that writing is like this too. And after we get started, after we've been working on a project for a while, there is a point where we're uncertain and where we don't know what to do next. It's a point many of us call the murky middle. And it suddenly felt like exactly the right thing to talk about with an illustrious lineup of authors this season, both New debut writers, as well as household names, in fact. My guest this week is Danny Ramadan, who is a Syrian-Canadian author, public speaker, and advocate for LGBTQ plus refugees. His debut novel, The Clothesline Swing, was shortlisted for the Lambda Literary Award, longlisted for Canada Reads, and named a Best Book of the Year by The Globe and Mail and Toronto Star. His children's book, Salma the Syrian Chef, won the Nautilus Book Award, the Middle East Book Award, and was named a best book by both Kirkus and School Library Journal. Ramadan's next novel, The Foghorn Echoes, and his memoir, Crooked Teeth, will be released by Penguin Random House. Through his fundraising efforts, Ramadan has raised over $250,000 for Syrian LGBTQ plus identifying refugees. He has an MFA in creative writing from UBC and currently lives in Vancouver with his husband. What a treat this conversation was. If you are the sort of writer who enjoys having mental frameworks to understand aspects of the writing process, this episode is going to blow your mind. I know it certainly did for me. It was such a delight to speak to Danny about writing the Foghorn Echoes, the way that he outlined it, the way that he conceived of the story from the beginning, and the really nitty-gritty process of laying out the character arcs was wonderful. And he was so generous in explaining exactly how he did it. And I could feel it snap into place having read the book. So having listened to this conversation, I highly, highly, highly recommend reading the book. Not only because it's a wonderful book, but because you will learn so much as a writer seeing these concepts play out in this story. 
In addition, we talk about ways he understands metaphor and his concept of the metaphor tree, which I think everyone needs to learn, as well as the stages one goes through when writing many, many drafts of a book. Spoiler alert, he has 17 for the Foghorn Echoes, but when he breaks down the stages, it won't feel quite so scary. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Denny Ramadan. Hi, Denny. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Caroline. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So it was a real pleasure to read The Foghorn Echoes. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the process of constructing this story between two characters in a way that are so far apart from each other, so much of the book. And I was interested in how the story came to you and how you decided to follow this path of telling each of their stories in Mm -hmm. tandem and going back and forth between the two sides, really, of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the story was born actually uh, unintentionally. I was struggling to find uh, the topic at hand that I want to look at for my next novel. And um, I spent six months unable to put pen on paper, just unable to come up with an idea that I wanted to work on. And then uh, one day at three o'clock in the morning, I was asleep and uh, it was December and there were fog outside and um, living on a coastal city for the first time in my life, um, I woke up to the sound of the foghorn. Now, I've never experienced a foghorn before. That is a brand new experience, completely new to me. Um, I lived on coastal cities before, like Beirut, for example, but Beirut doesn't get the fog that Vancouver does. So we never had that experience. A similar sound that I woke up to before was the sirens of war, like something is about to happen. So, of course, at three o'clock in the morning, I was triggered to God and back. It was the worst um, trigger that I had in years ever since. And um, ever since I left Syria and uh, my husband woke up and I was frozen in bed and I was shaking and and he had to calm me down and talk me through it. and then I asked, of course, like, what is a foghorn? And I and he explained to me the whole thing. Of course, nobody went back to bed. Me, the husband, the dog, nobody slept that night. Uh, we just sat and we talked for hours uh, in the living room, drinking tea. Um, and then I sat down and I wrote the scene that ended up being at the very end of the book. That is about foghorns that the book is, is titled about. Um, At the same time, so when I wrote that scene, I had two characters and I wasn't even sure who those two characters are. They were just a shadow of their current self, basically. And and I didn't know what to do with them. But then I leaned in on my obsession with the response to trauma. Trauma is uh, usually painted in this black and white uh, binary concept of the flight response where you escape and the fight response where you fight for your life. And I find that to be oversimplifying the matters of trauma. So I wanted to create a bit two different ways of responding to trauma. 
so they are identical in every way growing up. And then they have this massive trauma that separates them. And one of them responds with flight. So he leaves to Vancouver and try to escape his demons over there. While the other is responding with fight. He is trying his very best all the fucking time. It is in his soul. He has to fight it. Um, and and I looked at that from that perspective and it just it just came to be that way. I didn't see them that way, but now it's like the whole structure of how the book happened. It, it just popped into focus as you were saying that. Oh, I'm glad to hear. I, I worked really hard on it. So I drew the whole uh, narrative on a wall. So I have a mentor. His name is John Vinia. Uh, so cheers to John. He is the best mentor in the history of mentors. Uh, and him and I, we spent... Um, an afternoon in his office and he has this big whiteboard and we drew the story from the inciting incident so we created the circle that is the inciting incident and the two characters are just like living inside of that inciting incident and then we drew two arrows heading out in opposite directions and that's how we created the the concept of the story and every time that something positive happens we drew um an arrow on 90 degrees on each arrow upward and something negative is happening. We drew arrow downward. So it created this like massive, um, it looked like a jet, a jet fighter from, uh, from Star Wars. It's like a ball <laughs> in the middle with like two wings on the side. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing. Um, and just looking at it from that perspective allowed me to create two extremely separate stories that are also well-connected. The two characters, like it's not a spoiler here, the two characters never meet again um, in, in traditional senses, but their stories just echo each other. And that happened because I drew the whole story first on a board. I I love this sense of creating them from that moment. And then did you have a sense of one of them before the other or they came together sort of as the two? Mm. I almost see them as like mirror images in a way in that moment when their mm -hmm. their sort of peace is shattered at the beginning of their lives or mm -hmm. early on in their lives, I guess we would say. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I actually never thought about this. Hmm. So after I wrote the second draft, after I wrote the second draft, uh, I shared it with, with John, my mentor. And he sat me down and he asked me why I hate Hossam so much. Ooh. And I, I, I wasn't sure what he was talking about. And he just showed me how Hossam is in that draft is unrelatable. That uh, Wasim was very relatable. He was lovable in a way throughout the book. Uh, while Hussam is like intending on self-destruct, and I didn't at the time create a reason for him to be so self-destructive. I I haven't made him um, shine, crystallize in that way that it allowed him to to be to make the dumb decisions that he was making. But for the reader to see why those dumb decisions. Um, matter to him and how how they they affected him. Um, so I would say, in a way, I thought as I was writing the book, I was writing the first draft. I thought that I was creating this mirror image, but then um, 
I realized slowly but surely that me, my feelings as a person, as a queer person, um, affected how I was drawing Hussam. Because Hussam truly, like from the outside, without actually looking in into him, I, I actually hate Hussam. I actually hate people who are like Hussam. Um, he's a he's a coconut, right? Like he's brown on the outside, white on the inside. He had um uh, eradicated everything that is Syrian about him in exchange for uh, sex and drugs and alcohol and popularity. And he um, he comes across as perfect in every way from the outside. And I drew him that way. And I didn't realize that I was also drawing a lot of my hatred toward folks like that. Um, which is which is something that I had to talk to my therapist about because you know like you have to you have to see people where they are right you have to like understand who they are and at the end of the day Hussam is people so so there was a lot of self searching a lot of diving into why I have such a negative feeling towards the A type gay boys who are perfect in every way and I had to. I had to take a couple steps back and 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 realize that they can have depth too. Yeah. I think this is so important because there is there is a way where we can say, okay, that isn't how I felt about Hassam in the final draft. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it sounds like writing this draft was incredibly valuable in the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. The book went through seventeen drafts in total. Um, of course, I love the last like five that you have the number. Oh yeah, no, I <laughs> <laughs> they're numbered. I have a folder on my uh, on my laptop. And draft one, draft two, draft seventeen. Um, the for, the last like three or four drafts were sentence based. So I was working on each sentence, making sure it makes sense. And then the last draft was basically grammar and uh, and spelling mistakes. But um, I think that move from draft two to draft three three was the the most the biggest milestone right after creating draft one. So you create draft one and draft one teaches you what the fuck are you talking about? Like it's trying to tell you what kind of book you're writing. Draft two is trying to focus that first draft and draft three is when you're actually now free to do what you want with those characters. Those characters are now 60, 70% there and and you start to hunt them you start to create them and 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 make them perfect um in your mind by perfect i don't mean good in every way i mean um perfectly clear if that makes sense um it does yeah yeah i love that draft that draft is definitely my favorite yeah <laughs> you love draft three Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Dra- no, I love <laughs> draft three. Still needed draft four, five, and six. But uh, what I love about draft three is the process of because now I have divorced the story. The story is now draft two, and after their conversation with Don- with John, the story is not impacted by my own emotions, but rather by my writer self. I am not the artist who is I don't know. Um, um, drawing the painting anymore i am the person who's with the tiny little brush making sure every line matches if that makes sense um so i i loved working on draft three because my emotions um as a person were put a hold aside and my emotions as a writer 
were the ones taking control. I was perfecting a good story, if that makes sense. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that as well. I mean, there are just different stages that you go through. So I'm very curious what happened between draft three and draft 17. So we've got 15, 16, 17 is final refinements, grammar, mm -hmm. sentence level. But mm -hmm. what are we doing between three and 15? Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I think about it like building blocks, like a pyramid, actually. I think about it like a pyramid. The first layer, the first draft is creating the base of the story. And then the second draft is a bit tighter. And then the third and the fourth, it gets tighter and tighter until the last draft right there. It's like the the the, the pearl of the drafts, the end, um, the goal that we're reaching for. Um, and I would say there were... There are a lot of drafts where I was focused on asking myself questions like, okay, so he is going out with this guy, but why? Why does this guy matter to him that much? Um, there were other drafts, for example, the uh, Hussam's mother, for example, uh, presented quite a lot during the, um, the, the first like four or five drafts, six drafts actually. And then at some point I had to cut her all the way back um because in a way she wasn't serving a purpose he escaped right like at the end of the day i asked myself a very simple question so he escaped everything why is he still um thinking about his mother like if he is an escapist he is an escape artist and he er eradicated everything about his past and his mother has eradicated him in a way so why is she still here why is he still bringing her up into conversation so there was a lot of that um there was definitely draft nine or ten i i, I can't remember the actual number where uh john you will hear john's name a lot when i'm talking about craft I'm because him thrilled. and i we just yeah ah i love him i love him he's amazing um he told me to uh hold my my draft by the ankles and shake it really well so all the change that it's in pocket in its pockets will fall off so there was a draft where i looked into i say the word honestly a lot while i'm writing so i went through the whole book and looked oh. for the word honestly and i was like how can i make this better how can i remove this and make it make sense um there was a lot of um uh, similes rather than metaphors so i would use this is like that uh, instead of actually creating a metaphor so there was a lot of metaphor working um i came up with a concept that i love it's my favorite i came up with it it's trademarked it's my thing it's called the metaphor tree and okay. that is this is that very is exciting Oh, I'm really excited about it. It's so cool. I think I think I'm a genius for creating this. Um, well, let's so you know have you're it. right. Yeah. So you you know you're right. Metaphors throughout mm -hmm. the book, right? Throughout any novel, there's a bajillion metaphor in there. Um, I thought to myself, it makes no sense for me to write on page five a metaphor that is about the ocean while I write on page 28, a metaphor that is about, I don't know, uh, Mars, the, the planet. They're just not connected, right? So I thought that one thing that I wanted to do throughout the book is that for all the metaphors to be from within the same roots and the same tree. So I decided on uh, water, I decided on uh, weather, and I decided on uh, 
ships, uh, the idea of boats and ships for uh, the roots of metaphors for the uh, the foghorn echoes. And every metaphor throughout the book had to do with something with weather, water, or ships. It just had to. So that is my metaphor tree. Every every leaf on that tree, every singular metaphor can be rooted back to the idea of water, ships, or weather. It just does. I never use a different metaphor. Like um, if I have a different metaphor, I would change it to something that would work with that metaphor tree. Um, it's like an engine, right? Like it's an engine that pushes the story forward. You as the reader wouldn't actually recognize that. Um, it's not in... It's not for you to recognize, really. It's um, um, it's for me to um, to create an atmosphere for you within the novel, if that makes sense. It does, and I can I can feel that as the tree. Now that you mention mm-hmm. it, as I reflect on the book itself. Mm-hmm. So here's a here's a question, because I find that. A lot of people talking about the writing process will will want their book to be, you know, quote, about something in a way. And mm-hmm. and so I, I can see both the brilliance of the metaphor tree and the danger of using it too early in the process. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. did you write, say, draft one, one and two, and then see what metaphors were naturally coming up and then make the decision what the tree was going to be formed from? Or did you mm-hmm. consciously decide what the tree would contain before really mm-hmm. getting into the work with the language, say? Mm-hmm. Um, I like that question. Um, the idea of a metaphor tree came to me around like draft six or seven, I would say. So it was, it came way into the story. Um, but at the same time, hmm, at the same time, the, the roots made sense to me because um, that we have two characters who live across the world. So they will experience two different types of weather, right? We have uh, the idea of immigration. So there's a lot of uh, movement like ships on the water. Um, There's the idea of being thirsty all the time for something, for belonging, for for a community, for love, for connection. And that is something that uh, brought to me the idea of water. So I wanted, I... I didn't just, I don't know, had a list of 200 types of metaphors and choose, I am going to do this, this and that. It, it just worked with the concept of the Foghorn Echoes, the, the, the stories, the themes that I was trying to, to navigate, so I would say. Um, I think it's, um, I think therefore, if I'm going to teach this method to people, I would tell them to wait until the story is, is, crystallized as clear as the characters are there and we know what where their hurt is coming from where their their wound is and then and then you can choose your metaphor tree and there's nothing wrong with creating a metaphor that is lovely that you'll end up having to cut out of the book because you will have your um i have a i have a word document where i gather all of the discarded metaphors um i call it the orphan tree and i would move (laughs) all the orphans (laughs) I'll move all of those beautiful orphans into um into that uh, that uh, that that document, and then maybe one day I will have to use it. Yeah, they'll have a new. They'll find a new home. 
in a different story. They'll find a parent one day in a different story. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, some trees have to be pruned, though, in order to be healthy, if we're going to take this metaphor forever. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I am going to steal that. I'm going to say you that have next it. time. That I... Thank you. you. Have Thank it. you. That's, oh, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> we made a metaphor together. That makes me happy. It's... <laughs> I'm happy about that, too. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that makes sense to me because I think that the story, it's like things are happening under the surface. And I love the idea of the metaphor tree. It's like, you don't know what the roots are bringing up at the beginning. And then mm -hmm. by the time you get to draft six, seven-ish, then you'll start to see the roots above the surface and you can see what kind of tree you've got. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think honestly, like, um, I use, there's a lot of metaphors on how to write a novel. Like one of them is, for example, it takes a village to write a novel because it's not just you who work on the novel. It's you and your mentor and your editor and your husband who brings you wine and your friends who puts up with you as you like whine about it and, and all of that. All of those people are participating in making a novel. And at the same time, there's the metaphor of uh, a novel being a seed. When you're writing that first scene, you are putting a seed in your mind and you're allowing it slowly but surely to, mat to, to mature, really. Um, that's, that's, I think that's why um, I find it quite insane. Insane is a bad word. I find it quite interesting um, to see authors who are capable of writing a book in like nine months. Um, that is just outside of my comfort zone i need four or five years to write a book because it takes time i think for that tree to grow from a seed into a, um into a tree like into an actual living breathing tree it just needs time it just needs i don't know i need to sit around and look like an idiot on my balcony thinking about it for for six months before i actually can can bring myself to type a single word so how do you stay engaged with it? Because we all have those periods of whether or not we have balconies sitting around. Like <laughs> I am lucky enough to have one as well. And I know what same, you're talking same, about. Yeah. But the wherever you sit around looking like an idiot, when it feels like it's not happening, how do you stay mm -hmm. hopeful and motivated in that period of time in order to keep going mm. all the way to draft 17. Cause a lot of people mm -hmm. I think, think you should be able to write a book in nine months and that that's totally normal. And if you can't, you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I believe that there are four periods in the life of an author. Um, there is when you're writing a book, the first period is that you are um, before you write the book, you are trying to come up with a book, right? And then as you start to write the book, the first period is something called unconsciously incompetent, where you are <laughs> you are writing and the writing is shite, but you are you think that it's the best thing ever and you're unconscious how bad your writing is. And that's okay. That's part of the process. You're allowed to be unconsciously incompetent. All right. Um, and then there comes a time where suddenly you realize how bad your writing is. That's when you become consciously incompetent, right? Um, so you start to, that's when you sit on the balcony being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm an idiot. This is the worst thing that ever existed, blah, blah, blah. And during that time, I think the, the best thing that you can do is read resources, um, read about the craft, uh, read books that are in the same 
uh, vein as the book that you're working on, watch TV shows, and sometimes watch The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. There's nothing wrong with just like taking a mental break and look at those white women fighting over a mundane thing. That is totally fine. You're welcome to do that. Um, but also, I think that in that second period, you need to do something um, called kindness. And I know as writers, we rarely are kind to our words. We're very kind to every other writer's words. We, we oh, yes. encourage everybody around us. We're so great at being good to other people. We're really suck at being good to ourselves. And I think that that's, 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 a, that's a thing that we need to, to encourage during this this consciously incompetent period. Um, and then and then we start writing again. And we are so full of self-doubt, but the writing starts to get good, right? We are not aware of it, but the writing is getting good. So this is when you're unconsciously competent. You uh. are starting to write good, but you are so fucking scared that your writing is bad. And that's okay. That is the period of time where you need encouragement from your readers. You need uh, encouragement from your husband, from your friends, from your mentor. That is when you are writing well and you need you need to continue to writing well. And then there's the holy grail of all writing. It is when you are consciously competent. And yes. that is, ah, that's beautiful spot. You're never there for more than a day or two, but it's such a beautiful spot. It's just like when you're writing and you're like, God damn, I'm good. This is it. <laughs> this is such good writing. Um, and that is, that is, that is, that is the goal, isn't it? So I would say, and God, yes, I am rambling and I know rambling is great, but here we are. I would say that. No, this is good. Um, oh, I love that. I love that concept. It's, it's like psychology meets writing. And I love that. I love that concept. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I would say that no matter where you are in this uh, stage, know that it's part of the process. Like, the idea that you can just suddenly, you wake up one day and you are consciously competent is impossible. You're not Gabriel Garcia Marquez, nor you want to be Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You are you, and it's totally fine. You are in a place where your writing is shite and you're aware that it's shite because that is part of the process for you to reach the place where your writing is great and you're aware of that. It's so helpful to see that framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, I think I think it's a fantastic way of looking at it because um, when I wrote the first book, when I wrote the Clothesline Swing, my first novel, I um, I didn't even know I I wrote it back in Lebanon, right? Like I was a Syrian refugee in Lebanon, and I wrote it back in Lebanon, and I wasn't even sure that anybody would read this. It was my first uh, book in a second language as well. Um, I was writing a lot of magic realism in it. There's ghosts and ghouls and, and the angel of death. That's one of the characters. I'm like, um, I have no idea if anybody would like this. And also I was um, high as a kite throughout the writing of the Clothesline Swing. I was dealing with, I was self-medicating with a lot of um, um, recreational drugs and weed um, while I was uh, living in, um, in Lebanon. So when I came to writing this book, uh, I wrote it sober and I wrote it here. Um, and I wasn't even sure that I would be able to make sense in writing again. Like the clothesline swing, 
was quite successful. And I kept repeating to myself, it's successful because I was high, it's successful because I was going through trauma, it's successful because a million things that are exterior to who I am. So when I wrote the Foghorn Echoes, I wrote it internally. I wrote it for myself. I wrote it to prove to myself that I can write sober, that I can write um, well, just because I'm a fucking awesome writer. Um, and that is, and that is what I tried to accomplish with this book. And I, I am still waiting for the word to catch up. <laughs> I think, I think a lot, I, I'm hoping that one day the world would, uh, catch up that I'm an awesome writer. Um, I think a lot of people do, um, hopefully, uh, a major award would, uh, would catch up to that. <laughs> make me the next Gabriel Garcia Marquez, please. That sounds very exciting. Oh, I think, yeah. I think this is, yeah, this is the point too of the, I find that this is the struggle with writing as well. It's like you go through this cycle mm-hmm. of unconscious incompetence and then conscious incompetence and then unconscious competence, which is that part to me is the scariest part it, mm-hmm. because you can, that's when people can give up. It's like, they don't, they're not aware that they can, they, they've turned the corner. And I always mm-hmm. think that there's a point when you need to be fired from deciding whether or not it's good. That's when mm-hmm. someone like your mentor is most important to say, no, keep going. And then, mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. get on to the point though, where it's conscious confidence. And then there's like, no, I know this is good. And it's so frustrating when that message isn't immediately transmitted everywhere right yes 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 and that's the thing like i i can i can genuinely tell you that the foghorn echoes is a great book i i know that in my heart of hearts right like i know that deep down inside i wrote a fantastic book and there's no ego here i would tell you if i wrote a shite book um there's a lot of criticism that I have for myself for the clothesline swing. When I read it lately, I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? But, um, but when I wrote the Falcon Echoes, I can tell you genuinely speaking that it's a good book. Um, and there's a lot of people who are reading it and finding it to be quite positively like there, there, there are a lot of people who are liking it. I think I'm just a sucker for recognition by, by by my peers, by like other authors and awards juries and all of that to be like, yeah, you did good. Like, I don't give a fuck about like um, this title, that title or the stamp of approval. I just want somebody who I look up to, somebody who writes well to come to me and be like, you did well. This is good. This is great. Yeah. Good job. It is. Yeah. I think it's, it's very... It always fascinates me what everyone's measure of having succeeded with a book mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And I find that also there's this trickiness inside of our, our like critical minds. One of my favorite being somebody who did win an award for her book, which mm-hmm. was a beautiful book. And mm-hmm. then she talked about it on this show, actually. She was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I got the award. But then she was flying somewhere in an airplane mm-hmm. and there's some voice inside her head said well if this was really a great book it would be in the airport bookstore <laughs> <laughs> so 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 10 years ago um i had this idea that i want my books one day to be in an airport uh, bookstore and um i told matthew my husband that 
ages ago. Uh, and then my friend, Samantha, she is uh, a flight attendant. She's a fantastic person. She's very close to me. And she was in Edmonton and in Edmonton airport, they had the book, The Falcon Echoes, um, <laughs> in an airport bookstore. <laughs> and she sent me photos. And and this fucking critical voice inside of my head, my my uh, my internal saboteur or whatever RuPaul's Drag Race would call this, um, <laughs> was like oh yeah but it would if it was a good book it would win an award and I'm like for fuck's sake <laughs> I've always wanted this like and now it's happened it's right there why can't I just like I yeah yeah I think hmm. oh I want everyone to listen to the interview with Natasha Dion next to this conversation so you can hear the really powerful bookends of <laughs> The one who got the award, the one who got the airport bookstore, and both of them, maybe you two could swap or something, and then it would be like a perfect, a perfect matchup of happiness. Oh, okay. So I will be vulnerably egotistical here for a second, and I will tell you something. I want everything. Like I absolutely want everything. I want to be a bestseller. I want the New York Times to have my book right there. I want to win all the awards. I want to be in airports. I want to win the Nobel Prize in 20 years from now. I want everything. I really, truly, genuinely do. And not for nothing. I really think that I'm a good author. I really think that my work matters. And I'm I'm writing stories about communities that nobody else is writing. And I wish other people who are like me are writing those stories. But there's there's such a limited place in, in Canadian literature, in literature in general, for folks who are marginalized to write books. So, but at the same time, I'm doing my fucking best, my man. I want everything. I really do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like I, I invite you, dear listener, to think about it for a second. If your art matters to you so much, if you have woken up um, when you were seven or eight and the thought in your head was, I want to be an author. And you grew up in a place where nobody around you is an author, where books are not as valued and you worked your fucking ass off for 30 years until you have your books published, you would want everything too. And there's nothing wrong with that. Please do want everything for yourself. I I couldn't have said it better. I mm. I think that, and I hope that you saying that inspires more people to take their dream of writing seriously too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, oh gosh dream of writing um i would say i get a lot of people who um because you introduce yourself as an author right um you're in a gala of some sort and people ask you hey what do you do for a living because that's the question people ask and you're like oh i'm an author and then you have to um to to add that you're a published author or something because people would would just assume that my husband is my sugar daddy then uh and i'm just like writing um, and publishing, self-publishing on Amazon, which nothing wrong with that. Um, it just, it shows a certain hierarchy. I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but it shows a certain hierarchy in which the white man who works in finances is assumed to make a lot of money, while the brown man who's artistic, who's his husband, is now his sugar baby. While in reality, I make the same amount of money, if not more, than my husband. But that's 
that's besides the point. My point is I meet a lot of people who are, who when I say I'm an author, they tell me that they want to write a book. And I think the first thing that I tell them is that then, okay, then write it. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, but what if I don't know how, or what if it's bad, or what if it's not great, or what if it's, and I'm like, we would never know until you actually write it. And the only reason, the only way we'll be able to judge it is if you actually shared it with anybody else. So write it for yourself, write the book, sit down and write the book and, and don't share it with anybody. Don't. Don't find a mentor. Don't share it with your husband. Don't talk to your friends about it. Just write it. And then after you write it, now that you have, I don't know, 80,000 words in a Word document, that's when you go and you talk to people about it. And that's when you share it with people. After you have accomplished the fit, if that makes sense. Yes, you. you there's, there's no way to know mm-hmm. what it's going to be unless you write it. The only way we'll know is if it's going to be nothing is if you don't write it. Absolutely. It is already nothing if you don't write it. And the other thing is, I'm sorry, but like, if you have the talent to write a cohesive story over, I don't know, 160 pages, that by itself is a book. It might not be the best book there is. It might not be like a fantastic book, but but you're not there for to be the next Margaret Atwood, are you? You're there to write a book. That's, your goal is not to be famous and your goal is not to be um, a well-regarded author. Your goal is to write a book. That is what you keep telling me. So write it. And then after you finish writing it, we can talk about editing. We can talk about drafting. We can talk about the craft. We can talk about a million different ways that can better that story. Um. At the end of the day, honestly, think about it this way. There are writings like chess, right? There are 32 pieces on the chess board and you just move them around and there's a bajillion ways to move them around, but there's there's very little um, creativity in coming up with a new story. Like there's always a life triangle. There's always an um, adventure of some sort. There's always a dig deep into like a, like a human study of some sort, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you are not trying to reinvent the wheel. But what makes you stand out is that after you create the wheel that everybody had created before you, you can then look at it and edit it and make it better and and insert your own lived experiences in it and insert your own metaphor tree in it and insert um, your passion into it. But if you don't have the wheel to begin with, we there's no way for us to tell what you're capable of. I think that's huge because so many people feel like they have to do something 100% unique and that's the whole point. And I think mm-hmm. that if you if you allow yourself to as you said there are certain moves within a chessboard that you follow mm-hmm. but it being you that's describing them it's going to be different rather than mm-hmm. trying to invent a construct like the construct of this story has to be completely unique. Well, let the let the story be a human experience and mm-hmm. let who you are and the way that you tell that be what's unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you an example about that specifically in the YA and the young adult writing. Um, Piercy Jackson and Harry Potter and uh, the Hunger Games um, are all the same exact story. 
an unaware person who is uh, pushed through into a new world that they never experienced before, who slowly but surely gain friends, usually two, a man and a woman, a girl and a boy, and um, they grow together and they are unwilling to face the danger, the challenge, but they have to because they are pushed and they are the chosen one to do it. And then um, they fail multiple times, but then at the very end, they win. And it's the end of the story right there. It's it's the exact same story in each one of those fantastic books. Like they are great books, to be honest. Like when I read them, I love them. And they are they couldn't be any different from each other. But the 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 skeleton, the 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 the, the story is one. It's just told under different um, magical elements or under like dressed up differently, I would say. And and each one of those books got successful, and they never get compared to one another. It's not like they are the same book, right? So yeah, just think about it as a skeleton. Create a skeleton, a life triangle, an adventure of some sort, whatever it is that you're creating, and then add into it your lived experience and then add to it your your uniqueness. Um, you don't have to, there's no way for you to, there's no way for you to recreate a wheel. The wheel has been created a bajillion times before. Yes. And the other thing is, is that the, while we love in this show to nerd out about things like your X-Wing fighter with the story structure mapped out of the book, I didn't need to know that to enjoy the book. And Mm -hmm. without this conversation, no reader needs that to -hmm. follow the story. That's, that's for you to create as the writer. And I am of course, delighted to hear about it, but Mm -hmm. This experience of these two friends who fell in love and experienced a a heartbreaking accident that separated them and sent them off in other directions. There are other stories of two people, either friends or lovers or both, who were separated Mm -hmm. by a misunderstanding or an accident or something Mm -hmm. that happened and then Mm -hmm. continued their lives. But yours is completely unique because you told it and it was your characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll give you examples. You have uh, Honey Honey Butter Big Bread, which is a book by um, uh, Ikwasa, her last name is, a fantastic writer. And, um, And it is about twins who were separated by trauma in their childhood. And the book is told from their two different perspectives. Uh, I will give you the sun, which I forgot who the writer is, uh, but it's also about two brother, a brother and a sister who got separated by trauma in their childhood. And they're telling a story. Um, the man in the iron mask is a book about two, two twins. One of them is uh, the king while the other is the prisoner and the story of how they're switching places. There's a bajillion story like this. Like literally I can tell you there's a bajillion story like this, but I can also tell you that my book is extremely fucking unique because I tell that story with my own, um, with my own element to it. Um, and then I look into the characters themselves, like look at Wasim, for example. Wasim is Hamlet. Wasim is basically Hamlet. He is stuck in one place. He is um, haunted by a ghost. He is uh, uh, uncertain about his future, uncertain how he can uh, move forward after a massive trauma. He is Hamlet. He's absolutely the Shakespearean uh, character. Um, 
Yeah, and 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 I just used that element and infused it into the twin story that I we just talked about, right? Yep. And I never once thought of Hamlet when I was reading it. Yet now that you say it, I'm like, oh, I see it. Totally. Yeah. 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 And you're allowed to to have your you're allowed to have your inspirations, right? Like you're allowed to to be inspired by other books. You're allowed to just create something unique by infusing all of those different elements of inspiration. Mm. And and the funny thing is, is that we think it's so obvious if we think of these inspirations when we're writing. And yet, because you went on and told the story of your characters, I didn't see Hamlet at all until you told me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Think about it this way. So I call them engines, which is, um, which is interesting. So when you're driving a car, you don't think about how the engine is pushing power into the wheels so you can move on a road from point A to point B. You're just driving a car, right? You're just responding to the car with your wheel and with your driving wheel and the, the two pedals. Um, the engines are my business. I create the engine of this car. I, I, I bring in the twin story. I bring in the uh, Hamlet. I bring in the metaphor tree. All of those are my, my, the elements of my engine. And then you never see them as the reader. You are the one who's driving the car. You don't think about the engines, nor do I need you to think about the engines, right? I am the architect who created those engines. And then you are the user. So I'm, to use a very social media term, I'm thinking of the user experience. I'm trying <laughs> to, <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> to create a story that is as smooth for the user to you to to read as possible. If that makes sense. It does, and I don't know if anyone has ever snuck that one in before as a metaphor, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it works. I think it works. And um and yeah, like I love I love doing that because at the end of the day we are we write the first couple of drafts for ourselves, right? We are the user of the first couple of drafts. And then at one point you have to divorce yourself out of the story as we talked about before. And that's when you have to think about the user as the reader, as this random person, uh, this woman, this American woman who lives in Germany, who's going to read the book. How would her experience be like um, to, um, to read this book? And that is that is one way to look into how to create an art that can be it can both be a puzzle that you put back together as the the author, as the reader, sorry, um, but also can be transformative for the reader where they can learn something, but not in a, I'm going to lecture you about Syrian refugees for the next six hours, more of a, I am going to tell you a very good story and let's see how you allow it in. I think that's the best way to learn anything, honestly. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, I agree. I, it's been such a joy to talk to you about the Foghorn Echoes and I, Aww. awards committees, you've heard it here first. This book, <laughs> this book is taking over the literary scene. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me, Caroline. I really appreciate the time with you.
Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.